we launch into a brand new sermon collection titled Stories. The subtitle says that the stories that shaped a generation then are the same stories that will form a generation now. As a pastor, I am dependent on data. One of my most useful tools in my role in this church is the Barna Research Group. And many of you have heard of this research group. What they do is they send out surveys and they collect a huge amount of data on churches all across the nation and the globe to give pastors and, and ministry leaders a real information to make an informed decision from. I love data because data sends a message. It tells me what's going on. Data is so important for someone like me to make informed decisions by, and many of you are in a career where you are dependent on data. And so we are used to, in our generation now in 2023, when we don't know something, we do what? We Google it. We Google it. I Google it. And you Google it. If you do not know something and you want to find something out, you Google it. If I need a specific amount of data from a, a, a pool of research done or a, a survey sent out, I, I look up a research group or some kind of Christian think tank that has come up with this data so I can make a better decision on. You might think that this strategy would work in the kingdom of God as well. But what we'll find out for the next month as we examine four of Jesus' most potent parables throughout the Gospels is that that is not true. As a parent, you probably read the reviews of that vacation hotel or that resort that you're thinking about taking your kids to for spring break. Well, I'm just going to read some reviews. I'm going to get some anecdotal evidence. I'm gonna, did they get a five-star on Yelp? Are they getting five-star reviews on Google? And you depend on someone else's review for you to make a decision. I would too. And that works really well for a spring break vacation. Maybe that anecdotal evidence gives you confidence that what you're about to spend your money on is worth spending your money on. We are data people. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you Google it. You read reviews, you depend on anecdotal evidence, and you make decisions based on that information. Is this the way the kingdom of God works on planet Earth? Is it information-driven? Is it data-informed? And in one sense, data can be very, very helpful for a three-year-old church plant to understand the ebbs and flows of the city that we claim to serve. And that's a good thing. However, as Christ followers, we follow a man who is God, and his name is Jesus. And data is helpful, but data ain't got nothing on Jesus, <laughs> And so what we're going to find out in the next month as we examine these parables is that Jesus does not answer the questions that are deep down in human hearts with data. He does not answer questions using reviews or five stars or anything like that. Jesus is not forcing you to Google him. Jesus does something totally different. 
In these parables, what we will discover is that Jesus is introducing new language to a group of humans that have been accustomed to one way of life. When he speaks parables over crowds of people, he is speaking to people who are accustomed and conditioned to a monarchy relationship. There is a physical king, and I am a subject of his. And there is typically an oppressive relationship that goes along with that relationship. There's a king, I'm a subject, that monarchy is the relationship. When Jesus comes to earth wrapped as a baby and grows to 30-year-old and starts his ministry, he begins telling stories. And these parables, and the word parable literally means to come alongside of, he uses these parables to assist him in teaching these listeners what the spiritual kingdom of heaven is like. And it's nothing like the kingdom you are currently living in. He doesn't use data to explain that to his listeners. He doesn't use reviews. He doesn't take anything from Google. He doesn't take information and present it in data points. Although helpful for us in certain contexts, that's just not what Jesus uses to teach these listeners what this new spiritual kingdom that he has introduced on planet Earth is all about. He answers some pretty potent questions. Questions that I've asked myself before too. Questions like, why does God permit pain and suffering? What is the kingdom of heaven and how does it grow? Do I have a part to play in that enterprise? Why can't I see the kingdom of heaven the way that I can see the buildings of a city? These are puzzling questions, and there's many, many more. Here's the big idea as we enter into the next 40 minutes, is that Jesus answers life's most puzzling questions, not with data, but with stories. Jesus takes stories, parables, fictional, made-up stories that have implications in reality, and uses them to assist him in teaching his listeners what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's dramatically different than the kingdom of the earth. And so Jesus teaches these listeners and these disciples these stories, and you might ask yourself, like, why the story? Why not just skip the story and give me the data points. Like, if Jesus really is, like, above all time and space and sees it all happen all the time, like, wouldn't he know that people in 2023 just, like, just give me the main points, man. Like, give me the cliff notes. Like, let me just, like, get the big idea and don't make me go through a bunch of hoops to understand you, Christ. Just give it to me straight. But stories have this ability to transport us Like a really good book or a really good movie has the ability to transport us. Parables also have this ability. And then we will discover within that parable that there are characters that Jesus has put forward. That he is calling on us to identify with or inhabit. Or he uses objects to describe human behavior. Novelist Maya Angelou, she passed in... 2014, she said, I've learned 
that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Jesus is intimately aware of that truth because he uses stories, parables, to teach, to create meaning, to explain meaning in the kingdom of heaven, and these stories carry memory. Now I can remember the way I felt when I heard that story. This is why Jesus opts for stories. This is nothing new, actually, church, at all. The psalmist in the Old Testament in Psalm 78 actually prophesied that Jesus would do this very thing. Listen to the psalm. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a what? Parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. Now, before we open it up to uh, Matthew's tradition, the Gospel of Matthew, I just want to give you just a little like cheat sheet here, a little primer as we examine this first parable, the parable of the sower, which is the farmer and the field. And we'll, we'll get into all that here in just a little bit. But I wanted to give you just a, a quick primer on the function of parables. Now that you understand that Jesus has opted to share with his listeners what the kingdom of heaven is like with stories rather than data, now that you believe him that he's going to use stories and parables to describe the nature of reality, the nature of himself in all things, you should know that the parable functions in a multidimensional way. What I mean by that is that a parable is kind of like a house. You can actually walk into a house and you can look through multiple different windows of that house and you can see multiple different perspectives out of those windows. A parable has the power to do that very same thing for its reader. Because there are different characters within the parable, there are different objects within the parable that we can relate to, identify with, and inhabit. This is a really mysterious power. The power is that Jesus' parables understand you better than you understand the parable which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that Jesus understands you perfectly well. It is presenting to you a house that you can walk into and look around a bit and figure out which of these characters you identify with, which of these objects Jesus is using to describe your behavior, your vision, your faith. So a parable is a multi-dimensional thing. It's this powerful teaching device that Jesus uses to describe and teach reality. Now, so you're all not confused as we jump into Matthew 13. Again, I wanted to offer you a bit of a primer. And y'all like cheat sheets because I used cliff notes too when I was in school. And so here's the cliff notes. The farmer is you and me. Okay? The farmer is you and me. The seed is the word of God, and a field is a lost soul, okay? The farmer is you and me, the seed is the word of God, a field is a lost soul. So before we open the passage here, I want you to picture in your mind's eye, Jesus in this little like John boat, because he just got done fishing or whatever, because he's the man, and he's in the fishing boat, he's there on the side of a hill, and there's this great big crowd of people that's on the side of the hill, 
Now, he was in a territory where he would have drawn a diverse crowd of people. There would have been a little bit of everybody there. He would have been able to speak to different people groups all at once. They were all used to the same paradigm. I am a subject within a monarchy. I have very little freedom. I subject myself to a human king. That was the paradigm this crowd of people was used to hearing. Then Jesus shows up and describes the kingdom of heaven and introduces this concept to listeners who are like, what are you talking about? I don't see any buildings. I don't see any palaces anywhere of yours. What do you mean you're the king? Where's your palace? Where's your chariot? Where's all the stuff that goes along with being a king? Come on, Jesus. Really? Are you really a king? And so he introduces this reality of his kingship and his spiritual kingdom with this first story. This is Matthew 13. Pretend you are a crowd of people on the side of a beautiful hill in the countryside. And Jesus is in a boat and he's sharing these words with you. This is Matthew 13. This this is what the word of God says. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in what? Parables. Saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And if I can be really frank with you, I resonate with that question so much. Has anyone here ever heard of the uh, personality profiling assessment tool called DISC? The DISC profile? Okay, so I'm familiar with DISC. I was put through DISC in my assessment process. Here's what uh, the D stands for in DISC is direct, okay? And then I, S, and C have their own descriptions. I scored pretty much a zero on everything except for D, highly direct. I'm highly direct, and I just want communication to be clear so there's no doubt for misinterpretation, no doubt, no question for meaning. I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't want that person to be confused. I feel like there's a huge value on direct communication. Of course, the liability with direct communication is you constantly hurt people's feelings and have to go back and apologize to them all the time. So I'm a professional, I'm sorry person. Jesus could have used direct language. Part of me is wondering why he didn't. Why did you just not opt to give it to me straight? So there's no room for doubt, no room for confusion, and no room for misinterpretation. And then Jesus answers the disciples' question. He said this in verse 11. He replied, because... 
The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Wait a second. Jesus just got more confusing. As if the first part wasn't confusing enough, then he confuses it further. This is the power of Jesus' obscurity. Follow me here just for a second. The obscurity of the parable invites you, listener, to explore and discover what's inside the house. This was a unique teaching method of Christ Jesus's to his listeners. He's inviting you in and saying, I got to give you a bit more than direct communication. Because if I just give you direct communication, there's no invitation to come inside the house and look around a bit. Why is this important? Because through exploration and discovery, life change occurs. It is through the looking, it is through the asking, it is through the curiosity of the human condition, it is through what is Jesus saying to me this month, it is that mindset where breakthrough occurs. If Jesus just gave it to us straight, and sometimes I'm like, God, just give it to me straight. There's value to that. But Jesus has opted for stories because he's way more concerned about life change than convenience. And so some of y'all just need to accept that Jesus is inviting you in to look around. Look at what Jesus says here in the next verse, in the middle of 13. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Jesus is intimately aware of those who are lost and the conundrum they face. Jesus just described someone who is unwilling to hear his message. He is so intimately aware of the condition and the plight of the lost. But if you are here this morning, it tells me that you are curious enough about the things of Jesus. And that's more than enough for God to work with. And so if you are here this morning, you're like, Luke, I feel lost. I don't know where I am in life. I don't know where I'm at in my relationship with God. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know how God might want to use me in my lifetime. I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. I can't quite figure out what, the, what God wants to say to me and how he wants to use me. And friend, Jesus is intimately aware of your condition. He is intimately aware of the reality that you are currently going through, and he is so preoccupied by it. And his disposition towards you is love. And his disposition towards you is mercy. And he's inviting you into a room to look around so that you might understand what it is as he's saying to you. 
So if you feel lost this morning, you're in a great place, right? Jesus has invited you in to be found. Look at verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see. Now he's talking to the disciples again. And your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Jesus just juxtaposes the reality of someone who was lost with the reality of someone who was found. And he just kind of puts it on the disciples and said, look, there have been many, many people before you right now that have longed to be in my presence, that have longed to hear the teachings that are coming out of my mouth right now. And he's telling the disciples, like, look, you're getting the most privileged amount of time with me face to face. There's a lot of people before this moment that would have loved to have this moment. Those disciples in that moment realized something. They realized that in the presence of Jesus... They had everything they needed. They had everything they needed. And Christian brother or sister in the room who's been with the Lord for many years, you might find yourself being like, oh, if I just had a little bit more money, then I could participate in kingdom activity a bit more. Or if I had a title, I'd be more influential in the kingdom of God a bit more. But listen, friend, you have the word of God, you've got the spirit of God, and you've got the people of God. You've got everything. You don't need anything else. Anything more than that is just extra, and that's good. But if you've got the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God, you've got it. And you have enough to flourish in the kingdom. May you find your heart to be in these disciples' hearts. May your shoes be in their shoes in this moment. And understand that you have everything. Look at verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. So then he goes on to explain, finally, directly making no room for confusion, no room for doubt, no room for misunderstanding. He's just juxtaposed the reality of someone who is lost with the reality of someone who is found, and he explains the meaning of the parable in verse 18. Verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The key word here being they do not understand. All right, there is plenty <laughs> that a lost person doesn't understand about the kingdom of God because those things are discerned spiritually. But it doesn't mean that Christians need to make it more difficult for them to understand. It is confusing when someone stands on the side of the road holding hateful signs up and associates those signs with God. It is confusing when symbols other than the cross or words other than the Bible are used to describe who God is. It's confusing. It's confusing when a Christian takes a political system and attaches God's agenda to it and says they're the same thing when the reality is the kingdom is over both political parties, over all political systems. It is confusing when Christians make it Harder to understand than absolutely necessary. It is just so critical that you are careful with the seeds God has entrusted to you. A bit more on that later. The second seed, verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, which is a beautiful thing. 
But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is the seed of evangelism without the seed of discipleship. This is massive movements of evangelism without follow-up discipleship. And often people get the two confused. This evangelism, this, this preoccupation with saving the lost, which is a good and beautiful thing that we should all put our, put our uh, energy into. And then there's the work of discipleship, which is, which is seeing a Christian grow in maturity and experience life change. Both are dependent on the other to flourish and thrive. One is not junior varsity and one is not varsity. They are both equally important for the kingdom of God to flourish. And so some of y'all might need to ask yourself, like, am I in a season of discipleship? Have I submitted myself to a process of discipleship? Am I willing to grow? Am I willing to become a better version of God's version of me? Is there space in my life where I can mature? And you should ask yourself, am I throwing the seeds of evangelism? Am I actually trying to reach the lost, or am I hoping someone else does it for me? More on that later, too. Look at the third seed. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. I'm like 99.99% certain that if you are in this room under the sound of my voice, this doesn't apply to you. But there is a chance that there's someone in here who cannot resist, who cannot resist the things the world offers and is allowing that to shape, form the trajectory of their life. And if you are that person, I want you to hear me. It's not as good as you think. The things of this world do not last. The things of God last forever. They last forever. None of these seeds have been fruitful. Look at the fourth seed. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. All right, let's take a pause. So a hundred times what was sown. That's a massive claim on Christ's part. Let's take corn, for example, which is so befitting because, you know, Indiana, right? A single stalk of corn will produce between two to four ears of corn with 500 to 1,200 kernels on each cob. So let's just be really, really, really conservative with our math this morning. Let's just say there's only two ears of corn with 500 kernels on each cob, totaling 1,000 kernels. A single corn plant can be planted using one dried kernel, which is the corn's seed. On one acre of land, you can plant between 22,000 and 35,000 corn plants. The average acreage of a farm planting corn in 2017 was 725 acres. So I'm, I checked my math a couple times. There's a chance I could be wrong because math's not my thing, but I checked it. Let's do the math. A thousand kernels times 22,000 individual plants, times 725 acres, because you can fit 22,000 plants on one acre. So 1,000 kernels times 22,000 plants times 725 acres is 
1,850,000,000 kernels. One dried kernel, one dried kernel has the ability to create a 15,950,000,000 yield. Like, what's, what's the point, Luke? <laughs> what's the point of this crazy math? There is no shortage of opportunity. There's no shortage of need. There's no shortage of ministry to be done in a world suffering from pain. There is no shortage of people needing to hear the gospel. There's no shortage. There's no shortage of people. There's no shortage of seed. There's no shortage of opportunity. There's only a shortage of farmers. There's only a shortage of, of workers. There's no shortage of opportunity to reach those who have not been reached. And what is so shocking and startling is that, and tragic, is that three quarters of the seed that was sown in this parable wasn't fruitful. Only the last seed produced anything good. The first three seeds that were scattered didn't fall on soft, cultivated soil. Therefore, didn't reproduce, didn't create a crop. Oh, make sure your heart, friends, has deep, soft soil in it. A readiness, a willingness, a desire to be discipled and to be stretched and even for God to apply a little bit of pain if growth was the, the product. So here's the breakthrough idea this morning. You are either the farmer or you are the field. You are either the farmer or you are the field. And many times this has been taught that God is the farmer. And this could work, but it is have a much more difficult time working when we get into the application. I would actually say that God is the farm owner, right? And you're the lead farmer. You're the manager of the farm. So I want to speak to the farmers in the room. And the farmers are people who are actively engaged in the mission of God. Okay? You are actively engaged in some capacity in the mission of God. And I want to ask you a question that's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? Am I your pastor or am I the pastor of the church you attend? Don't answer it out loud. I want you to answer in your heart. Am I your pastor or am I the pastor of the church you attend? If I'm your pastor, I want to call on you to be much more careful with the seeds that God has entrusted to you. Seeds sown in a divisive way will not create a yield. Seeds sown in a toxic way will not create a yield. Seeds sown in a way that drums up division and gossip and dissent does not create a yield. Farmers, we are subject to mismanage the seeds that God has entrusted to throw. May you, may I have the wisdom to be careful and intentional with every single kernel. It actually is quite easy to tear the church of God down. But actually, it takes a burden for the lost to build this church up.
at every one of our lives, in every one of our lives, at every stage of our life, we've all been guilty at some point, farmers, of mismanaging those seeds. We've sown the seed of division. We've seen the, sown the seed of gossip. We've, we've sown a toxic seed because of ego or pride or agenda. May you be careful and intentional with those kernels that God has entrusted to you. Although they are not on short supply, if we misthrow them, they're going to fall on a path, rocky soil, or in places with thorns. You must be careful. So the kingdom of God is like a farm. Jesus is teaching this crowd of people on the side of a hill next, next to the shore. The kingdom of God is like a farm. And God's the farm owner, owner. And you are the farm hands. And this is why we've got a big, bold, audacious vision for 2030. Some of y'all heard this vision a couple months back, but some of you are newer in the last even six weeks. 2023 to 2030, we've got a vision to add a thousand spirit-filled people to Indiana in the next seven years. We believe it's possible because Jesus promises that it's possible. A hundredfold, 60-fold, 30-fold. This isn't a new idea. This is Jesus' idea. Growth comes by partnership with the farm owner. And we are the farmers. We are the farm managers. And if we misuse those seeds, if we scatter them in places that don't create any product, any fruit, any yield, then we shouldn't expect the yield of 160 or 30 times that which was sown. The X factor is you. Between Christmas and New Year's, I went and got a dozen chickens. Now, who in here has chickens? Anyone else has chickens? Yeah, we're crazy, right? When my wife said, hey, I want chickens, I was like, okay. I do two for the eggs. And so in one week, we devised a plan to go find some chickens. And this is what my wife did. She roped her friends in. And so my, my buddy and I, we drove to Illinois with a trailer attached to my truck, and we went and bought uh, a dozen chickens each. Now, finding the chickens was really tough, actually. Once we found the chickens that we wanted, we found them in Illinois, ag country, Illinois. We drove all the way there. It took us like three and a half hours. And once we finally got there, through multiple like uh, roadblocks and all kinds of just uh, things that interrupted the journey to finally get there, once we finally got there, we pulled into this beautiful farm. Now, I want you to picture this in your, in your mind's eye. Pine trees, open fields, big, beautiful barns. We pulled up, we pulled down the driveway, we pulled up to the first building where we were supposed to meet a nice lady named Betty. And we pulled up to the first building and we're like, wow, this is a really beautiful place. And then right then, this door swung open on the first building and out walked this lady with Wellingtons way up to her knees, rain jacket, some kind of farmer's hat, and she came storming right up to my truck. I mean, Betty was on fire. So I rolled my window down. She goes, are you the Indianapolis boys here for the chickens? I was like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into here? I'm like, yeah, yes, ma'am, we are, we are here for the chickens. You mean to tell me you drove four hours for a dozen birds? Oh my gosh. I'm like, should we turn around like right now? Like what's going to happen? I was like, yes, ma'am, we're here for a dozen birds. She goes, okay, well, follow me. So we followed her back into the pasture we looked at all these chickens. We were so excited. She goes, boys, have you ever caught a chicken before? <laughs> no, ma'am. This is quite literally my first real interaction with a chicken. Uh, 
just here for the chickens. My, my wife and her friends sent us here to get chickens. Sorry, we're here for the chickens. Oh, let me show you how to catch a chicken. Okay, so she gives us a little chicken catcher, and we start running around catching chickens. I'm thinking to myself, this would go viral on Facebook if someone had videoed this. It would have been hilarious to watch me and my buddy chase chickens for 30 minutes, and we finally got our chickens into the boxes, into the crates, into the trailer. We're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe we just caught two dozen chickens. This whole time, Betty, man, she's a wet hen herself, dude. She's mad. She's like all flustered. She's got a bad attitude. Like, what's with Betty? So at the end of us packing up the chickens in the trailer, I look at Betty. I'm like, hey, Betty, why are you liquidating your chickens? Why are you getting rid of your chickens? She kind of steps back a little bit. She goes, you see those pastures over there? I go, "Uh, yeah, I I see them. She goes, they used to be full of sheep. It's like, oh, where did they go? We had to sell them all. It's like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You see those, that pasture over there that had two, three hundred more chickens in it. We had to get rid of those too. It's like, oh, why? And she took a step back for a second, and with tears in her eyes, she goes, because the owner and I couldn't find anybody to work. And I was the only one willing to do anything. And Betty must have been, I mean, she was definitely in retirement. And she was the only one there on the farm working. And the owner and her had to to liquidate the sheep and liquidate the hens because they couldn't find help. And I saw in Betty this deep love for this farm and the animals in the farm. And it clicked. She loves this place. I represent someone who's taking what she loves away from her. The reason, this made, the reason this morning made me think of that story is because I actually think Betty is a lot like God in the sense that he loves his farms. He loves his fields. He loves his farm hands. He loves the enterprise of kingdom growth because they are his and he has a relationship with them. And some of us need to come to terms with how much God loves the economy of growth and production. You know, the danger of the Christian church in the West is the country club paradigm. I come in, I get what I want, I'm part of a a good deal thing, uh, I fit in, uh, I don't contribute anything, therefore I don't grow anything, and I'm out. And and look, you are always welcome here in every capacity. I hope you stay. I hope you grow. I hope God uses you in every single way. But we are not a country club. We are a farm. We want to produce. We want to create an economy of growth. We want to see God throw seed onto soft soil and produce a crop. Why? Because like Betty, he loves his farm. He loves his fields. He loves this concept of growth. So farmer in the room, listen to me. If I'm your pastor, listen to me. Be careful with the seeds God has entrusted you with. Be careful how you use them. Make sure you are throwing them onto soft, cultivated soil. Be intentional with your ministry. Be intentional with your mission. Don't just spray and pray. That doesn't work. We saw that it didn't. 
The first three seeds didn't land on anything good. Be intentional, be careful, and be humble with the seeds God has entrusted to you. Now, every farm goes through cycles of growth. And like a church, a farm is like a church, and a church is like a farm, churches go through cycles of growth too. And so that means that this church and every other local church, as they grow, will go through cycles of change. So for those of you who are just like, I hate change, you must understand that God's economy of growth is a slow change. Let me describe it this way. Healthy things grow. Growing things move. And moving things change. You understand? When a seed hits soft soil, it then germinates and it moves. And then it grows into a plant that produces more kernels and a crop and a yield. And then it goes through a life cycle change again. Everything healthy changes eventually. And some of y'all just need to embrace God's economy of growth. Things will change in the kingdom. The message never changes, but the method must. As the culture continues to find more and more darkness, the kingdom of God must be brighter and brighter and brighter. And although our message of Jesus does not change, the method of getting that message to the masses does. For example, we don't ride horses from town to town anymore with the gospel. We've got this thing called the internet. That's a change. When this church goes to two services in August, things will change. It will change the way we serve communion. It will change our staffing philosophy. It'll change our budget. It will change a lot because God's economy of growth changes. It goes through cycles. So farmer, may you have the spirit of Betty and love the farm God has you at and embrace the change that comes along with it. Now, I want to speak to the fields. Maybe you're not a a farmer, maybe you're like, Luke, you know, you kind of alienated me there. I'm not actively engaged in the mission of God. I'm just here visiting, like, what gives? And he- hear me when I say, like, I'm so, so glad you, you are here. I'm so glad you are here. And, and may your heart be a field that God can grow great things in. May it be a field. But you must choose to allow your field to have cultivated, soft soil in it. Well, Luke, how do I do that? This past week, I I went to lunch with a buddy uh, just at a restaurant down the road here. In our server, she was so sweet. She was so, so sweet. She came to us, and she had just just all this kind of energy. I've just never seen energy like this before uh, in a long time, at least at a restaurant. She was so kind. She was so polite. And then she asked me what I did for a living. I was like, oh, I'm I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, what church? I was like, uh, actually, uh, Mercy Road Church down the road off 465. She goes, oh, that's, that's awesome. And then she proceeds to ask like three, four more follow-up questions. A lot of them really good questions. Like questions I'm like, I haven't heard that question like I don't think ever, or at least in a long time. And I was blown away by this woman's curiosity about the church down the road. And it hit me in the moment And it hit me right then that this heart is open. This is an open heart. This is a field God could grow great things in. 
This isn't in a rocky field. This isn't a path. This isn't a field with thorns in it. This is, this is some cultivated soil. So I said, hey, this is our church. We have services at 1030 on, on Sunday morning uh, down the road. I'll, I'll write the address down. I'll write the, the website down. Now you've got some information to go on. And I have no idea if you're here this morning or not, friend. I hope you are. But the best part of that conversation was how real and honest she was. Because after we had this conversation, he goes, yeah, JC is the beep. Whoa. Didn't see that coming. I'm like, I agree. He is awesome, isn't he? This woman had authentic, soft soil in her heart. And her questions proved it. If you want your heart to be a field God grows great things in, you must be a person who is curious, asking questions, discovering, walking into that house and looking around through the windows, through the exploration and the discovery life. Change will happen because God has a great way of meeting you right where you are today. And if you're in this room, you probably have soft enough soil to hear the message of the gospel, that you were created intentionally by a God who knew you from your mother's womb. And because of sin, which separates us from God, when we sin, we run away from God. It separates us from the Lord. And there's pain and there's suffering. But because God loves you without conditions, he created a pathway for reconciliation in his son, Jesus. So he puts forth Jesus, God of God, God in the flesh, born of a virgin Mary, who came to earth and who lived for 33 years, introducing the spiritual kingdom of heaven on earth and says, this is nothing like the kingdom of earth. It is the kingdom of heaven. It's how things happen where I'm from. And he introduces himself to a world desperate for his message, a message of mercy, a message of grace, and a message of truth, that there is but one way to be reconciled to the Father, It's through Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus. And this is a free gift. This free gift of salvation is for you. It's for you. And if your heart is open to receive that seed of truth and mercy and grace on your heart, it is a matter of time before God sends the water and the rain to create a germination in your heart where you will believe by the fruit of your life that God is who he says he is and has done what he said he has done. And for anybody in this room this morning, it's like, that's me. That's me. I want God to grow something great in my heart. I'm ready. I will meet you in the prayer room. I will meet you in the prayer room. Don't wait any longer to trust in Jesus. There is no reason. God has given you everything you need in the spirit of God, in the word of God, and in the people of God. There is an invitation for you, friend, to place your trust in Christ. Oh, Lord, may that person have the courage. May those persons have the courage for the first time to come around someone else who might pray over them the same way that that lady prayed over me this morning that brought me back to life. Lord, I pray that that person would find courage by finding someone else in the prayer room, myself or another prayer teammate, who said, yep, 
the seed of the gospel finally landed on soft, cultivated soil. I'm open. I'm curious. I want to know more. I'm willing to hear more. So Jesus, would that person have the courage to move their feet because they so desperately want what you offer, which is salvation, restoration, forgiveness, and a whole new life in the spiritual kingdom of heaven that looks nothing like the kingdom of the earth. Oh God, would we just be faithful before you today and faithful before you tomorrow as farmers who sow seed onto soft cultivated soil because you promise a yield 160 or 30 times what was sown. We embrace your economy of growth and ask that you would breathe life onto this church. We are ready for more. We want to take what you've entrusted to us and be faithful stewards of that. May we be a church who sees many, many, many people come to faith in the first, for the first time. And we, may we be a church who disciples many, many people to go and do the ministry. We love you, we praise you, and we sing these songs to you, God. In your perfect name, Christ, we said.